this week on the Backtable Podcast. So they put their money where their mouth is in terms of their product. And while it's shown that bulkamid does not cure stress incontinence as well as a TVT, it has shown high levels of patient satisfaction and significant cure in terms of stress incontinence, such that it, it remains on the table as an option for primary treatment of stress incontinence. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Backtable Urology Podcast. You can find other episodes of Backtable Urology on Spotify, iTunes, and backtable.com. I'm your host today, Dr. Suzette Sutherland from the University of Washington, and I'm delighted to have Dr. Tamsin Greenwell here from London, across the pond, as we say. She's at University College London Hospitals, and she's here to talk to us today about modern surgical treatment for female stress incontinence. And really, most specifically, we're looking at comparisons between the much-loved midurethral sling and one of the new urethral bulking agents called Bulkamed. So thank you very much, Dr. Tamsin Greenwell, for being here with us today. It's my pleasure. I'm very excited to talk to you. I talk to you a lot normally, but it's nice to talk to you and have it recorded. <laughs> right. So Dr. Greenwell, as I said, is a consulting urologist in London, University College London Hospitals, and a very good friend, as she just alluded to. And we would really like to get a little bit more of a global perspective on this issue. So why don't we start by just telling us a little bit about your practice and also your involvement in some of the academic societies like BAUS and EAU? Okay. So I've been a consultant urological surgeon, which is the equivalent of an attending in the USA since 2002. I'm very old. And when I was first appointed in 2002, I was one of nine urology consultants at University College Hospital. And now I'm one of 36. So we like to call it Urology College Hospital. I lead the functional reconstructive and adolescent urology team, which is composed of six consultants. And I've got a completely subspecialized practice in this area. I only take tertiary referrals, so from other consultants. And my main interests really are female and male urinary incontinence, voiding dysfunction, lower urinary tract fistulae, urethral diverticulum, and stricture in both men and women, and lower urinary tract reconstruction after radiotherapy and trauma. I've done quite a lot of educational posts as well as my consultant post. In the past, I've been the Royal College of Surgeons of England urology tutor, setting up and teaching on and organising urology skills courses with fresh frozen cadavers and animal tissue. I've been the BAUS Director of Education. I have led and been the chairperson of the Functional Neurourology and Urodynamics section of BAUS. And I have been a Board of Director member of the American Association of Urology Genital Urinary Reconstructive Surgeon Society. I've just demitted from that. And I'm a uh, committee member for the European Society of Genitourinary Reconstructive Surgeons. And I also sit on the Urethral Stricture Guidelines Committee for the EAU. So needless to say, you know something about the treatment of female stress incontinence. You've certainly lived through your career, the development of many different products. And so I think you're very well versed in talking to us today about this topic I'd like to start with a little bit of a discussion about midurethral slings. Again, both you and I grew up with the introduction of the midurethral sling and how that 
really changed the way we thought about surgical treatment for stress incontinence. Because of the different mechanism of action, the prior procedures that we used, the birch, pubovaginal sling, other things, the mechanism of action was really at the bladder neck. And here we had something which placed the mechanism of action at the mid-urethra, thus the name, mid-urethra sling. Can you speak to that a little bit more in your experience with the first one that came out, what that was and how that worked? Well, it was really devised from uh, Petrus and Olmsted's theory that a significant amount of continence in the female is dependent on the anatomical interrelationship with the anterior wall of the vagina. I like to think that it's all about the vagina. And so they devised a way of providing a backstop to prevent the urethra opening and leaking during stress and exercise and exertion by supporting the urethra posteriorly and anchoring it towards the anterior aspect of the vagina with the retropubic synthetic midurethral sling. And because it was simple and effective, it revolutionized the treatment of stress incontinence in women, uh, becoming a day case procedure from when it was devised in 1996. And then since that time, it was a great procedure. We had great efficacy. I think the longest term data we have is on the retropubic sling. As you well know, it goes out about 20 years, showing great safety and efficacy out to the high 80%, low 90% at 20 years. So that's really wonderful. We know that it really works well for those it works well in and it continues to work well over the years. But there were reiterations as innovation happened to say, how can we continue to maintain the same efficacy with the midurethral sling, but maybe improve the safety guidelines or the safety profile a little. And that's how the transobturator came about. And then following that, the single incision sling. What were your experiences with those? So DeLong invented the transobturator synthetic midurethral sling in about 2001. And the aim was to try and avoid the risk of bladder perforation and hence the need for cystoscopy and make it a quicker procedure and less costly. Unfortunately, that hasn't proven to be the case. You still need to do a cystoscopy because you can still perforate the bladder, although not as commonly as when you do a retropubic synthetic midurethral sling. And the mini slings were devised to try and avoid traversing the obturator fossa to try and reduce the risk of groin pain which is a rare but significant complication associated with a classic transobturator synthetic midurethral tape. I do use the term synthetic midurethral sling to try and distinguish from autologous midurethral slings, which I have developed following the mesh controversy, with the autologous sling being sighted around the midurethra rather than the bladder neck, which was how they were sighted classically. Yeah. The aim of these synthetic slings is, is really to have no tension, no occlusion of the urethra, to simply sit loosely around the urethra, but provide a rigid backstop, as I said before. But they must never be inserted in detention. Right. And that's a big key component and a big difference between the bladder neck procedures and the midurethral procedure. Absolutely. That it provides for this sort of dynamic kinking at the level of the midurethra, right? As the woman is dynamically moving, doing a stress maneuver. And what we do see today is, before we get into some of the mesh hoo-ha, we'll touch on that, but 
What we do see today is that there's enough data that's in our literature looking at randomized controlled trials, comparing the retropubic slings, the efficacy, right, and safety to the transoptrator to the single incision slings, showing equal efficacy in trained hands, people who appreciate the differences between them and how to tension that differently so that they're not too tight but still efficacious, that the efficacy really is comparable, such that our American Urological Society and our Society Urodynamics Female Urology, our guidelines for treatment of index stress incontinence now includes the possibility of doing either one of these three slings equally. So they did an update just this year in 2023, acknowledging that there's way more data now in our literature in the form of randomized controlled trials and showing equal efficacy. So I think it really comes down to what's good in your hands, what you're comfortable with, and where you're getting your efficacy. I'm going to have to disagree with you slightly there. I hate to do this, Suzette, being as we're such good no, friends. That's why we have you here. But, but if you look at the long-term data, the EAU guidelines have quite clearly stated that whilst there's short-term equivalence, there isn't in the long term. In the long term, there's an advantage over a retropubic synthetic midwifal sling over a transobturator. There is no long term data on the mini slings. So, whilst they're equivalent in the short term, the Alfata randomized trial was out to 15 months only. They're not the equivalent in the long term because we don't have that data. And they're also associated with different side effect profiles and there was a higher, if you look at the Alfata randomized control trial, looking at mini slings versus classical slings, which were unspecified whether they were retropubic or transobturator, they were a mix according to surgeon preference. There was a higher need for recurrent surgery for stress incontinence, 2% as opposed to 1% for the mini slings, and a higher incidence of dyspareunia. So I think for me, the jury's still out on mini slings. There is, in my mind, equivalence for the retropubic and the transobturator in the medium term. And in the long term, the woman in front of you has to decide whether she wants to go for cure of her stress incontinence at the risk of higher avoiding dysfunction in the long term with a retropubic or a lower risk of avoiding dysfunction and a slightly lower risk of cure of stress incontinence with the transobturator. Right. So again, we have a situation where the data just isn't there. We don't have really long-term randomized controlled trials with a single incision sling, certainly not out to 10 and 20 years. Of course, we don't have that because it was first developed in 2008. So I think what we see in the relatively speaking short-term three to five years looks rather comparable. But you're absolutely right. We need more data that actually takes us out to that long-term so we can make some educated decisions about that. So let's talk a little bit about the mesh issue, right? And so I like that you say you keep saying synthetic mesh sling, and I say that too when I talk to patients so they understand what am I talking about? Because then they always ask, well, isn't that the sling, the mesh that had problems, so on and so forth. So yes, we all lived through that. But here in the United States, we didn't live through the same kind of pause that you had in the UK in 2018. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that did and where you are now in the UK with respect to the use of mesh? Yes, certainly. As I said before, with synthetic midurethral slings, 
they were perceived as quick, effective and complication free. And they are indeed quick and effective, but they're not complication free. They have the same complications as all surgical procedures and like wound infection, blood clots on the legs that can go to the lungs, chest infections. They've got the same complications as all surgical procedures for stress incontinence, which is failure to cure the stress incontinence in 10 to 20%, the need to self-catheterize because of voiding dysfunction in between 1 and 4%, depending on the procedure, and new onset frequency urgency. But they've also got some specific mesh-related complications, which occur rarely, but are significant. There's mesh exposure in the vagina. I'm using the IUGA classification here. Mesh extrusion into the urethra and the bladder. Mesh extrusion into gastrointestinal organs. And chronic pain persisting for more than six months that is related to mesh, in particular the groin and the suprapubic pain that can come after transobturator or retropubics. There was an increasing awareness of these complications following the 2008 FDA notification in the UK and patient groups were formed for mesh injured patients with those complications and the largest patient group is called Sling the Mesh which has more than 7,000 members and it conducted a survey of about 550 of its members and found that contrary to the FDA notification which talked about complications associated with vaginal mesh for prolapse more than 75% of the Sling the Mesh members had had a synthetic midurethral sling for incontinence, and more than 75% of them suffered from chronic pain. This raised awareness, led to various national and international reviews from Scotland, England, and the European Union, and a formal public review led by Baroness Cumberledge, which announced a high vigilance pause on the use of synthetic mesh mesh for urinary incontinence in 2008. The review has now been completed. It's completed, a, uh, it's issued a report that's been published and the conditions for recommencement of synthetic urethral sling usage are that they should only be inserted by appropriately trained surgeons, which makes sense, who have undertake a regular volume of operation, which means that they maintain their expertise that they need to report every procedure for stress incontinence, including synthetic midurethral sinks, to a national database and keep a registry so that any complications are noted and acted upon early, a bit like the hip-knee joint replacement registries we've got. That all complications need to be reported to our equivalent of the FDA, which is called the MHRA, and that specialist centres for mesh procedures, insertion and removal, need to be bid for and set up within the United Kingdom, that NICE guidelines, which is our equivalent of the American Urology Association, National Institute of Clinical Excellence, need to be revised and be issued on the use of mesh. And all of those six conditions need to be met before synthetic mid-urethral slings can be reintroduced for um, stress urine incontinence. To date, most of them have been met. NICE has issued guidance and it does recommend retropubic synthetic midurethral slings, but it says that transobturated midurethral slings uh, should only be utilised in specific cases because of the difficulty in removing them if patients have complications, and that mini slings can't be recommended because of only the the lack of long-term follow-up data. 
it does also recommend that along with retropubic synthetic midurethral slings, colpo suspension and autologous midurethral slings are offered along with bulking agents for women who have failed lifestyle modifications and pelvic floor muscle training. The only things we're outstanding at the moment is the registry and the database. It's in progress, but it's not complete yet. So that was a wonderful overview of what's happened and what the response was. I want to take a step back, though, and just really ask you, and in your own personal practice, what you started off by saying is the number of reports of chronic pain in patients that had a major sling, and it was 70 to 75%, I think is what you said, and that's what grabbed the attention and why this pause happened and then the investigation into this. But in your practice, is that what you see? on a regular basis? And then can you really say that it was the mesh sling that was the source of the chronic pain in these women? It's really hard to tease out. So Bass conducted a prospective study of all stress urinary incontinence procedures over a period which it's published in the BJU International. And what it showed was a persistent pain following transobturation retropubic synthetic midurethral slings occurred at six months in about two to three percent of patients. Which is a low number, you would agree. I mean, it's a very low number, although, of course, if it's a chronic pain issue for that individual, it's a big problem. But it's a very low number when we look at other procedures we do, look at the high number percentage of complications we accept when we place an artificial urinary sphincter, for example, just to throw that in the discussion. I think that there is an unrealistic idea about the level of complications associated with motor surgery. For example, there was a study looking at 95,000 primary synthetic urethral slings placed in England from HES data. And over a nine-year period, there was a 9.8% perioperative and up to five-year complication rate. Patients reattended hospital or accidental emergency departments with complications that, although they don't know and can't specify the complications, so it could be difficulty with bladder emptying, it could be a UTI, or it could be chronic pain or mesh exposure or extrusion. It's really difficult to quantify. And I would say that 9.8% is actually quite a low overall complication rate, but this was held up as being a significantly high complication rate. If you look at something comparable, something completely different, if you look at a cystectomy or a clam cystoplasty, the complication rate, if you look at overall at wound infection, need to self-catheterize UTI, is much higher. So it's it's all about people being truly aware of the complication rates of surgery. And there's also chronic pain post-surgery is just becoming something that we as surgeons are aware of. You know, if you look at, there's a nice paper that shows chronic pain after cesarean section that happens in 5.8% of women. If When we looked at our colpo suspension and erectus fascial sling data for the BAUS paper I talked about, the chronic pain at six months was much higher for the big operations. It was about between 6 and 12%. So there is an issue with ongoing discomfort and pain post-surgery. We do know certain groups of of patients are at higher risk. Those who have underlying chronic pain, conditions like ME or... Fibromyalgia. uh, Yeah, those who have associated depression. So there are groups of patients that we can now warn are more likely to develop 
chronic pain following any type of surgery really uh, and and that is something that I think that we as surgeons have only really become aware of since the mesh debate began yeah what you're what you're saying is really maybe it's not the best word to use but I I call it the insult of surgery right meaning it's the trauma relatively speaking of the surgical procedure and not necessarily the mesh itself which is responsible for the chronic pain and there are some patients that we you know, can get some operative indication if they might be one of these people, but sometimes we don't at all. But with that, I mean, all of the exposure and media around pain issues with anti-incontinence procedure then in general, I think there are a lot of women who are now going back into the closet, so to speak, right? And not seeking the kind of care in order to resolve their issues. Are you seeing the same thing? Yes, there was a massive drop-off in women seeking stress incontinence procedures. Can I just take a step back and go to the issue of pain after synthetic midriffal things again? I think there are two types of pain. There is a woman who wakes up with pain and has pain in the distribution of, say, the obturator or around the groin or around the suprapubic area. And if you palpate the pain, you, the, the, the mesh, you can reproduce the pain and that I think is quite clearly related to the pain and then there's another there's another more difficult group who have diffuse or generalized pain and that may have started off as the former and progressed but it may be part of a generalized pain syndrome so it's actually very difficult to tease out in terms of what happened is women became frightened and they didn't seek treatment. They, they stuck with conservative methods or, or just containment. And we know that stress incontinence affects about 20% of women perimenopausally between the age of 46 to 60. And even if I do say my, so myself to you, Suzette, it's the prime of their lives. And we know that stress incontinence significantly adversely affects mental and physical well-being. It's got negative effects on intimate relationships on the ability to work. It's really difficult to teach if you're hoochingly wet into pads. And because of the breakdown of relationships, the inability to work effectively, it also affects the financial status. And it's also costly. Pads cost in excess of £100 a month, $130 a month at least. So it really has a negative impact on women. And I feel so sad if they're sitting at home coping because they're frightened of side effects. Yeah, so this takes us into another topic just briefly. I want to talk about this concept about shared decision-making, right? And so I know you and I have had conversations about this. And, you know, it's such a buzzword today. We need to be having shared decision-making with our patients. And I would argue that we always did. We always would tell patients the risks and benefits of a surgery and then help guide them where guidance was necessary. But when we talk about shared decision-making, sometimes people just provide a patient with all of the options and now say, here's your platter, you choose. It's a smorgasbord and you choose what you want. But do you think in that pure sense that that's really fair to the patients? What's our role to help guide those patients? And then, and what do you do? So I think it's very much needs to be individualized towards the woman sitting in front of you. Some women will want you as the doctor to guide them to what you think is best. Some women will want to have an in-depth discussion about what their aims are from the surgery and what the side effects are that they completely risk to avoid. You know, some women will say, I do not want to self-catheterize whatever happens. 
Other women would just be want to be dry, and some women would be happy with just being a little less wet. And so really, it's about individualizing your consultation. But actually, I do feel that the woman sitting in front of you needs to be told about, know about all of the options that are available to them and the pros and the cons and how they fit in with what their aims in terms of treatment successes and avoids are. And it's actually law in the UK that you've got to do that. So a stress incontinence consultation, you have to talk about doing nothing to having an ideal conduit. And it doesn't mean that you just give them the information, give them the leaflets and let them walk off. But you, you do need to make sure that they're fully informed. It's difficult because the concept of fully informed, we've talked about this before, only you and I could perhaps give fully informed consent to the procedures that we do, but we can at least make sure that the woman in front of us is understanding us as much as they're able to make an informed choice and decision. I think you made the analogy before to a car mechanic, right? I take my car in and it's making some funny noises and I don't want to know everything about how an engine works. I just want you to fix it. So hopefully we're not at that level when we're talking to our patients, but I think truly what you said, if you're giving a woman who has straightforward stress incontinence all of the options all the way up the algorithm to an ileal conduit and the risks and benefits associated with that, that's got to be a conversation that takes several hours and it becomes you know too much information for the patients to be able to really process in an educated way. So yeah, I think some guidance is helpful. But you did also point out two things, which we've had this conversation before too, which I thought was really helpful to break it down. What does the patient want? And what does the patient want to avoid? So those two real questions really help guide, you know, your discussion with the patients and the patient with you. It may be that what they want is to not be off work and to have minimal recovery time, in which case you'd say, well, bulking's for you. And it may be that they want something that's got the best outcomes in terms of stress incontinence cure, in which case the ester meta-analysis would suggest that's an autologous rectus fascial sling or a tensor fascial latus sling. Or it may be they want something that's very effective, almost as effective as the autologous sling, but with a quick recovery. And that would be a synthetic midurethral sling. So I do think that really helps you with your, with your discussions. Absolutely. And I think that is an important thing. Just what we think is important as far as an outcome isn't necessarily what's important to the patient. And that's where we need to be listening to them and helping them with the, you know, that's where the shared decision making comes in, I think. Well, so that's a nice segue into these urethral bulking agents. So other options for incontinence. As I said, there's a newer kid on the block called Bulkamed. Historically, the urethral bulking agents have, you know, they've had their role, but they've kind of worked so-so. About a third of the patients are resolved, a third better, a third fail, requires repeat injection, so on and so forth. With Bulkamed, what we've our experience is that things are really quite different and it's working really quite well and not necessarily requiring, you know, the expectation of repeat injections. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and why this product is really working better? First of all, it's been around in Europe much longer than here in the United States. It was FDA approved in early 2020. So our experience here has just been since then. But we look at the European data, of course, an experience that's been around for a much longer time. 
Yeah, it's been in use since 2006. I think that was the first report of its use. And how it differs is it's a non-degradable, non-particulate homogenous gel. It's composed of polyacrylamide. Before that, the gels were either degradable, if they were homogenous, like collagen, or they were particulate, so they were particles in a carrier, and the carrier would dissolve and it would leave the hard particles behind, or there would be gradual dissolution of the whole particle, as in deflux. And the other thing the manufacturers did with Bulkamid is they created an amazing bit of kit to allow you to inject into the female urethra. It's a very short urethroscope with a special needle guide that allows you to just place the injection under the submucosa and give you quite nice submucosal suburethelium bulges to actually assist the sphincter in coaptation. And we didn't have that before with the other types of injectors, injectables. We had to use very long cystoscopes and it was a bit like trying to eat your dinner with very long chopsticks through the letterbox. <laughs> so so I, th- I think that bit of care, along with its ease of use because it's a gel and relatively simple to inject, have made a big difference in how it's perceived in its uptake. Long-term studies have shown that there doesn't seem to be a significant fibrotic reaction to the injection, that the volume stays virtually the same. There is a bit of difficulty in telling bulkamid from a urethral diverticulum on an MRI. And if there's any doubt whether it's a diverticulum or bulkamid, then I would advise to get a transvaginal or transrectal ultrasound, as you can see, cross-hatchings of the particles. So it seems to be a safer form of bulking that also seems to be extremely effective. Not as effective as the classical treatments for stress urinary incontinence, but nearly, yeah. And the other advantage I would say that you alluded to that as well is because of the carrier type of gel, I say, you know, what you see is what you get. When you make a bleb and you take the needle out, it doesn't come back out at you. And I think you really have more of a reliable injection. So you feel more confident that you made a difference, that the patient isn't going to wake up and maybe bear down and squeeze all of the product back out the little holes. It actually stays where you put it. So I feel like it's more reliable. As you already said, it the blebs seem to stay there over the long period of time and those that have been imaged. So we know that as well and seems to be working well. So with that in mind, the first studies that have been done and sort of some longer, there's a seven-year long-term study out of Europe that looks at the efficacy of the Bulkamed. Can you speak to that? Yeah, there's been a five-year and a seven-year study performed. And they basically show similarly that you get more than 80% of women at those time periods say that they're cured or significantly improved in terms of their stress incontinence. If you look at the seven-year data paper, it breaks it down into cured as in dry and improved. And in terms of dry, it's 30 to 35% are dry at seven years, but more than 80% say they're dry or improved and happy. So yeah, if you break that down, then that's you know 30% that are dry, so we would say cured, and the other 50% right would be improved in the improved category. So thank you for breaking that down. I think it's just important, right, when we're counseling patients, what we tell them. But regardless, so 80% of the patients are quite happy 
because they are significantly, in their mind, significantly improved. And then the number of patients that we see in some of the studies that in order to get that, about 43% of the patients require a second injection after about a month or two months or so. Is that the case in these studies as well, where in order to get that efficacy? It's not really detailed very well in those longer-term studies. The data with the 43% reinjection rate is from Tommy Mikula's group in Finland, who did the prospective randomized control trial, randomized trial between Bulkamid and retropubic synthetic midurethral slings, the TVT, the classic TVT. And I think actually the company that manufactured Bulkamid did a very brave thing and honorable thing in that they gave the funding to Professor Mikula's department to do this study, but they had no control over its design, the conditions or the data. So they put their money where their mouth is in terms of their product. And while it's shown that Bulkamid does not cure stress incontinence as well as a TVT, it has shown high levels of patient satisfaction and significant cure in terms of stress incontinence, such that it remains on the table as an option for primary treatment of stress incontinence. Yeah, that's, that's a good segue into the comparative trial, the randomized controlled trial. It went out one year, and then they extended it out a few more years to three years. And looking at the data there, as you already alluded, the retropubic midurethral sling is the one that they used, showed improved objective efficacy with a negative cough stress test and pad weight test as defining you know, objective success, and out to 95%. Whereas with the Bulkamed, it was more in the 66, so high 60s, low 70%. And that's what we often see with bulking agents. But the subjective, they use a different type of evaluation for subjective assessment, right? A scale that went from 0 to 100 and identified that everybody that said that they were 80 or above was significantly subjectively improved. And when we look at that, the percentage of patients in the sling group who said that they were 80 or above, so satisfied, were 95%, compared to 60% in the urethral bulking agent group, which is then different when we're looking at some other numbers that we see. So I guess one of the take-homes really of this is when we look objectively, again, to our point about shared decision-making, what does a woman really want? Does she want to jump on a trampoline and not have to worry about, you know, do high impact activity? Her really primary goal is to be dry. Then perhaps counseling her about a midurethral sling is going to be the thing that'll get her there. Acknowledging that there are some issues. You've already said one to two percent, less than five percent, so on and so forth in trained hands for some of the mesh complications compared to okay, you won't be completely dry, jump on a trampoline, but is that good enough for you and your quality of life? And then avoid any of the potential complications associated with mesh. Uh, yes, I mean, you can tailor it to that, but, but you could also turn it on its head and say, if you have one or two injections of Bulkamed, you've got a 60% plus chance of being dry out of three years. Now, there's no long-term data, just like the mini things. But there is some data suggesting that if you fail bulking agent, bulkamid, then you could progress to have a synthetic midurethral sling without any adverse effect on your final outcome. And it's really 
that, that whether the woman sitting in front of you wants to have the least invasive procedure and accepts the second one should she not be dry or is happy to leak a little or whether they want to go for perfect. And so I, I do think it's quite a different patient population in terms of the choices that are made. Yeah, and so that brings me to my next question as far as that's concerned is then how do you use this in your practice? We have very different treatment options that provide seemingly good satisfaction depending on what the patients really are looking for. And where do you see using this in your practice, the difference? So as per NICE guidance and the EAU guidance, if a patient's tried and failed lifestyle modification, losing weight to a BMI of less than 35, completed three months of supervised pelvic floor muscle training without benefit, then I offer and discuss all available surgical options. For example, if you've got no hypermobility, you've got intrinsic sphincter deficiency, then a cold post suspension isn't on the table for you. And if you've got stress incontinence and you've got a history of pelvic radiotherapy, I personally don't think a synthetic midureteral sling is on the table for you and possibly intraureteral bulking because of the associated risks of exposure and extrusion. But if all options are on the table, then you need to discuss everything, as I said, from doing nothing to ileal conduit. As I say, it's a realistic discussion, starting off with what would they like? What would they like to avoid? And, and, and most, you know, the vast majority of women, you get to the stage where you say, and there's also something called a blood neck artificial urinary sphincter that's a more invasive operation or an ileal conduit with a bag, and they say, I'm not interested in that. You don't spend a huge amount of time going into every single detail of every single operation because they're quite clearly not interested in the more major operation, which is entirely sensible and expected. And they want to concentrate talking about, well, what are the differences in terms of success, recovery, and complications of bulking, synthetic midureteral sling, autologous fascial sling, and post suspension if they've got hypermobility. And, and so that's mostly what you spend your time talking about. And then we give them a detailed letter and patient information leaflets from the BAS. And then we let them go away and think about it, talk about it with family, and then come back and make their decision. Right. So there is, a, you already alluded to it as well, and I just want to point it out there again and just say it, you gave a nice summary there of how you talk to patients and what the options are. But there is a big movement right now that all women should be offered the Bulkamed as their primary treatment for stress incontinence. And then as you already said, if it doesn't work, you can go ahead and progress on to a midurethral sling. Just to complete the story, the opposite is also true. If someone to do a midurethral sling and not get quite the efficacy that they wanted, you can always add some bulking agent without impunity, just to have completed that um, statement. But Regardless, I mean, you know, what do you think about this idea that maybe the guidelines might get changed to say everyone needs to be offered a urethral bulking agent, whether they have urethral hypermobility or not? And if they fail, then a midurethral sling. I think some of this argument is coming again from the mesh naysayers who are worried about complications of mesh. But as we went through earlier in this discussion, there are mesh complications, but they really are 
very low percentages when we look at other procedures that we do and what kind of percentages complications are there. So I think to dictate the procedure that a woman has by changing pathways is wrong. It's their body, their decision, their choice, what they want to achieve and avoid. And to make it that bulkamid is the first step as a gatekeeper is, is inappropriate. It's being paternalistic or maternalistic as, as medicine becomes feminized. And I do think we have to have this joint discussion with the woman sitting in front of us to work out what's the best procedure for her. They may want a one and done. And if they want a one and done that's relatively minimally invasive, then they would go for a synthetic midrethal sling. If they want, as I said, the absolute best in curing stress incontinence and aren't bothered about side effects, then they might go for an autologous sling. So really to, to place bulkamid as an essential step prior to progressing isn't appropriate. And interestingly, the mesh-injured patient groups in the UK are very suspicious about bulking agents as they're an additional foreign body. So you've also got a group of women who aren't interested in that. So we need to advise people about everything. Yeah, right. So yeah, and then with that, can you just for the audience say, what are the EAU guidelines at this point? Of course, you know, counseling women about their options, but with respect to the bottom line, yeah, what is their recommendations from the EAU about slings versus bucamet? They very much specify and reiterate that they have to be offered a choice of different surgical options and a discussion of pros and cons. And the three main procedures they, they recommend are synthetic midurethral slings, either by retropubic transobturator or mini, but with the provisos that I said about long-term data. And they uh, autologous fascial slings and suspension, either laparoscopic or open. They say that a bulking agent can be offered to women who are seeking a low-risk procedure on the understanding that the efficacy is lower in terms of cure of stress incontinence, they may need repeat injections, and there's little data on long-term outcomes. Yeah. One of the things that came out of the three-year comparative trial between the sling and the bulking agent, Bulkamed, was they said that high subjective satisfaction does not seem to always require complete objective cure. And I think as surgeons, we're always trying to see how can we give them the most efficacious answer to their problem. But again, back to this idea of shared decision making, that's not always what the patient wants. And so I think it's really important to identify that and help guide the decision from there. So great. Well, I think this has been a wonderful, lively discussion. I think we hit all the points that I was interested in. Is there more that you had in mind? No, I, I just really think that it's important to maintain and expand our armamentarium if you don't offer everything personally to have a, a linked network that if the woman says to you, I'd like to have a laparoscopic colpo suspension, I don't do that. I refer to my gynae colleagues. And, and so I think it's important to offer every option and to refer on if you can't offer that. And that way, I, I, I think you have good care. Yeah, very good point. Yep. You need to know who's in your community and who does what and who to refer to if a patient wants something that you don't don't feel comfortable doing. So that's a very, very important point. So, okay. Well, with that, thank you very much, Dr. Tamson Greenwell. This has been Back Table Urology, your podcast for everything urological. 
You can find previous episodes on iTunes, Spotify, and Backtable.com. Please come and listen. We have lots of wonderful educational and really fun podcasts to offer. So thank you once again, everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by G. Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kinnebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.